My Other Face by Robert P. Fitton. Episode 1, Marta Pendleton Seeks Psychiatric Help. Deep into the darkness peering, long I stood there wondering, fearing, doubting dreams no mortals ever dared to dream before. But the silence was unbroken, and the stillness gave no token. Edgar Allan Poe, The Raven. The blonde-haired man in the lab coat shook hands with one of his colleagues and shut the door to his laboratory. He twisted the lock and checked it several times before he crossed the lab to his office. Being quite cautious, he shut that door too and hurried over to the telephone on his desk. He was about to lift the receiver but changed his mind, abruptly hitting the intercom button instead. A young woman's voice came over the tiny speaker. Vicky, hold all my calls for the next five minutes. I have a very personal call to place, he said in a classic Ivy League accent. Yes, sir, she replied and clicked off the intercom. The man behind the desk, Dr. James Pendleton II, sat in his desk chair and leaned back. Although he was nearing 35 years old, he looked 10 years younger. Maybe it was the thick blonde hair parted straight down the middle, or maybe it could have been his smooth, rounded face that hadn't aged since his college days at Tufts 13 years before. But his eyes were obviously tired and filled with a thousand twisted blood vessels. As he picked up the receiver, he appeared to be taking the first step to resolving his inner demons. He punched out the numbers of a long-distance call in a methodical manner, as if he were programming a computer. The line rang, and he waited impatiently, because he was at the mercy of his own impacted feelings. Hello, answered an older man rather quickly. Minos, Minos, is that you? He asked frantically. This is Minos. Well, where the hell have you been? The phone's been ringing for at least a minute, man. This is the right phone number, isn't it? Yes, this is the phone. Crossing the clock tower. Good, good, he said. He nervously got to his feet and picked up the telephone as he paced around the desk. Now, to get to the heart of the matter, Minos. That man, Quinn, who originally sent me the letter, what did he find out? Quinn is dead, Jamie, said Minos bluntly. Dead? Dead? What the hell is going on up there? Just listen to me right now. I know how you've come up with all your theories and accusations about your father's hydroelectric plant. But it just cost a man's life, Jamie. I suggest you forget about your theories and put the whole hydro plant issue out of your mind. You haven't told me how he died. Quinn was electrocuted in the turbine area. I tell you, there's nothing under this plant but dirt and rocks. Well, that isn't what Quinn first reported to me. He mentioned the possibility of an underground area some 200 meters below the surface. He had the readings, Minos. Queen was misled by his imagination. He was wrong, and now he's dead. So just forget about it, Jamie. Forget about it. Forget about the tulisk particles? The man said that he monitored tulisk particles. I am just a chemist, but I can still understand the meaning of tulisk particles. And I have done the research since... Tulisk particles appear naturally. At least that's what I've been told throughout the galaxy. 
not in the quantities that Quinn mentioned, and Tulis particles are associated with just one thing in those quantities. It's never been tested, to my knowledge. Purely theoretical and highly unlikely with present technology. And you know I'm talking about universal power. This is a damn hydro plant, Jamie. I work here. I know, I know. I also know that Quinn knew of your long-standing hatred of your father and his of you. Just because your father has expanded his industrial base and is making money off the plant. My father has nothing to do with this, Minos refuted Jamie as he grit his teeth and set the telephone down. Then he fell back into the chair. You hate your father. You want to ruin him, and you'll do anything to destroy him and his financial empire. Anything. Jamie breathed like a tired runner, and his face was brick red with anger, probably because he knew the hatred for his father was real, and ruining the old man was exactly the end result of his plan. He would not achieve that goal, however, by trading innuendos with Minos, Minos, I understand your concern. You are a worker in my father's plant. You don't want to jeopardize your job, and I know you feel a certain responsibility for the man's death. However, I'd like to state that I feel a moral compulsion to prevent the proliferation of this universal power. Very commendable and high-minded, but... Wait, I'm not through. Just hear me out. Dad's universal power, as I've been told by the leading scientists in the field, one of them from MIT, is a direct assault into the fabric of the universe. I know this is hard to understand, but you do have scientific background. If you would think of our three-dimensional space as a wet cloth, and then imagine the... Stop it. I don't want to listen to your theories. Well, you're going to listen, Minos. Imagine the capacity with proper mechanization to be able to squeeze that wet cloth, wringing out the water at the rate that you wish. The water is the universal power. High-speed charged energy particles that can then be converted into electricity very cheaply. Very cheaply. If you believe all that nonsense is true, then why are you having so much difficulty with it? What's the danger? Because, Minos, don't you see? asked Jamie, angered with Minos's lack of understanding. Universal power pulls in the space of the universe. It could someday provide a window to other worlds, millions of light years across the universe. We might be able to step onto such a world far out of the range of our best radio telescopes. This is all possible once the technology that will prevent the reverse from happening is set into place. If universal power were tapped today, there would be no means to prevent us from pulling in anything from a given area of space and time. Anything could come through, is what you're saying. Anything. Radiation, planets, suns, black holes, anything. There's just no way to measure it. We won't have that technology for hundreds of years in the future, and that's at the earliest time frame. Yes, it is. We just don't know what we're squeezing into. Why take the chance if the refinements aren't in place? Why, I ask? Just doesn't make any sense to me. You don't even know if it exists, Jamie. Advise Minos. You just don't know. That is exactly right, Minos. That is why I'm personally coming back to the little town of St. Argus, New Hampshire. 
I'm not trusting this to anyone else. I'll go beneath that hydro plant and I'll find the truth. And end up like Quinn, he scoffed. You must be crazy. You don't realize how obsessed you've become. You'll do anything, even believe in a fantasy. I tell you, this is no fantasy. I'm taking my wife and kids up there under the pretext of a vacation. We'll leave Los Angeles early Friday morning, fly from LAX to Logan in Boston, and take the shuttle up to Manchester. We should be in St. Argus by late Friday afternoon. I will arrive at the plant precisely at 8 p.m. But Jamie, you have no idea of what you're going to do. Just how are you going to enter the plant and go in where you want? I have it all planned, Minos. I've obtained the original plans for the hydro plant, and Quinn told me about the rest of the plant. It's cataloged into his computers. Just make sure that plan is available to me when I arrive. Listen, this means getting an entrance open and making sure people don't get in that area. That is correct. I don't want to be seen by anyone. The warehouse storage area is your best bet. It leads right to the plant parking lot. The gates can be opened just before 8, and I can personally open the shipping room door. You can drive your car right inside. Good. I want this to be quick. No follow-ups, no delays. And I don't want to allow any word of my journey to get out. If my father were to find out, he'd have Chief Hastings waiting at the gate for me. I will keep my silence. But I think you're playing with fire, Jamie. I'll see you at 8. Goodbye. Minos hung up and the line reverted to a dial tone. Jamie held the receiver in his hands, staring at it for a few moments before he lowered it back on the hook. He was taking a big chance now, the ultimate risk of his life. Keeping his theories to himself was the only answer at this time, because if he was wrong and the plant in northern New Hampshire was merely a hydroelectric plant, he would be the laughing stock to his family, friends, and associates. His career as a chemistry researcher at USC and his mental alertness itself would be critically evaluated. He would be as good as dead. At that instant, his thoughts drifted to Marta as he sat in his office. His wife was involved in another lengthy session with her psychologist. Her state of mind had been undergoing a downward plunge for years. She had switched psychologists over the years in an attempt to bring herself back on an even keel. Jamie knew there was no way he could share his suspicions about his father's nefarious activities with her. The true nature of the trip would have to be kept secret. His own irrational feelings would only add to her problems. Further, Marta Pendleton, even though she had not been close to Jamie for years, still regarded him as the embodiment of rationality and clear thought. He looked down at his watch. It was 3.30 and she would be expecting him downtown very soon. He stood and banged on the intercom button. Vicky, I'll be leaving now. Shall I tell them you'll be at home? She asked. If anyone wants me, I'll be at Dr. Johnson's office downtown. I should return home around 5.30. Problem, Mr. Pendleton? Nothing that can't be resolved sooner or later. Dr. Hiram Johnson gazed out his 10th floor office window into the crisp blue Los Angeles sky. It hadn't been this clear in months and the hills surrounding the city out to the San Gabriels beckoned him away from his office. Although he could not see his home in the hills, 
He could imagine the swimming pool and sparkling clear water soothing his body. He beamed as he looked up northward toward Burbank and Glendale, still smiling as the door to his office opened. I'm ready for the rest of the session now, Dr. Johnson, said a squeaky voice behind him. A short woman in her mid-thirties stood at the door with an expression bordering on guilt. I'm sorry for taking so long, but nature calls, Marta, he said, taking one final glance at the landscape outside. He turned to the woman and studied her as she sat down on the sulfur. Her brown eyes seemed perpetually mournful, and her face sagged not from age, but from an extended pessimism and depression. It was probably her long, flowing chestnut hair that gave her that attractive quality and added another dimension to her saddened mind. Johnson had been through six months of sessions with her. Progress was many months, even years away, because Marta Pendleton was not in control of her life. She had become totally mastered by the events and people around her, especially by her husband and the long hours he spent at the lab, denying her and the children the time he should have been devoting to them. She could live with that, however, because it was not as if he wasn't compassionate, he was. If he had the time, he was a gentle and loving man, but most of his time away from the lab was spent entertaining people from the college. He had put enormous pressure on her both socially and physically. These were pressures she was ill-equipped to follow or fulfill. Back had come her old feelings of insecurity and ineptness, all instilled so long ago, and all so simple, yet all so complex. I guess I should have been able to have some time to myself, she blurted out, not knowing why she had spoken up so suddenly. Johnson looked up as she waited for him to overrule her, and then she began to think to herself, as she often did, vividly and with great emotion. That was too damn much, Martyr. Who are you to tell him when you should take the time, when it's on his time, and you're making a prognosis? He's the doctor. I stepped out of bounds again. Right, right, said Johnson, looking at his notes. He must be pissed now, really pissed. Time for another shrink, or worse. No, not that. Hiram wouldn't do that. Not good old Hiram. He wouldn't put me away. Come on, Hiram, ask me a question. Go ahead, Hiram, come on, anything. I'll show you I'm not nuts. Now, Marta, we were talking before you left about your feelings toward your husband's career. How do you feel about the job itself? I feel good, I guess. About the job, that is. It's everything Jamie has ever wanted. A researcher at a major college? Then you're glad for Jamie. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, the money's flowing in now, and he's a real big deal. He got what he wanted. How am I supposed to feel? Well, okay, I, I feel alone, left out, inadequate, like I never could compete with him. I just feel like I want to die. Johnson overlooked her last remark because she had said it so many times. Instead, he tried to get at the crux of her present matter. Do you want to compete with him, Marta? I am not him, she said loudly. I can do just the same things as him, but I want to do something. But, but, yes, I don't object to being a mother and a housewife. I really enjoy it, but I can't reach out. Marta, said Johnson, trying to sum things up, but still knowing he was in precarious territory with her. Perhaps, and I've told you this before, you should make an effort to reach out, compete in your own way. 
No, I want to die. I want to die, she said, sobbing. Then it won't matter, will it? I won't have to suffer through every day, wondering if I'm doing the right thing or asking myself why I haven't performed better. I have a college degree, you know. Certainly counts for something. Then you'd say that your college work was rewarding. Yes, yes, it was. But I, I feel so lost, so lost. There just has to be something more, Doctor. There has to be. I suppose there can be more, Martyr, but depending on just how you perceive it, what would you envision as important? I understand all this. We've talked about it before. Putting realistic goals within the framework of my values. But what about my flashes, those hallucinations or whatever they are? You haven't discussed them in weeks. What do you think causes these violent scenarios? Asked Johnson. They really aren't scenarios. They're flashes. Quick glimpses of reality. So real. I see them before my eyes. And nothing else. But they're always in black and white. I want you to describe these flashes to me. The most recent ones. As many as you can. Don't be afraid now. Just let it go. Marta's face seemed to wince as if recalling the flashes was causing her great personal pain. She moved her tongue around the inside of her mouth for a few seconds and then moved her mouth itself, trying to draw out the words from deep inside her soul. Blood. Blood. Very bloody. Even though it's only in black and white, it's so bloody. Cut off limbs and arms and legs and faces I've never seen before, all shot up and laughing. I know they're laughing at me, all assembled together. I know they are laughing at me. Who is laughing? I can't tell. I, I've never seen any of them, yet I feel like I know them. Faceless, and one, a hanging corpse from a high place. It's too hazy. I, I, I can't tell who it is. And those bleeding dogs growling and foaming at the mouth like they're ready to spring out at me, and I can't get away. Did they spring out at you? No, they were threatening, I think, but they could have sprung out at me. And my husband, Jamie, Jamie was dead. He was dead. I didn't see him dead, but I knew he was. He was dead, she said as the tears were once again flowing down her cheeks. Then she looked at Johnson and what she knew was the same pathetic and helpless expression. Why? Why do I keep seeing such things? Has your husband been in these flashes? Never. But I see crowds. Crowds of people, all dead, doctor, all dead and all after me, chasing me. And at other times, they're all mutilated and bleeding without end. What is it? What's become of me? Why am I seeing such things? I just want it to stop. I want to leave it behind. I just have to get out of here, she shouted as her deep eyes remained wide open. Please, please make it stop. He reached over and caringly held her wrist. Just the fact that you're telling me these things, these flashes, that is a release in itself. You're letting me know what you feel. You're giving me your problems. That's a giant step forward, a giant step. And together, Marta, we will move forward. We will solve these problems. We'll solve them together. 
It'll just be a matter of time, and I'm a religious woman, doctor, she said, as if she were disregarding everything he had just said to her. He was taken aback at her statement and let go of her wrist. I go to church every week, all the holidays. I'm a good Christian. I give my offering to God. I have faith in God. I raise my children to have faith in God. I never hurt other people. I always try to be good. Do unto others as you would want them to do unto you. Can't you see, doctor? She asked as she wept and stared at the floor. Why can't he see? Why is he punishing me? Martyr, martyr, you really feel God is punishing you? Of course he is, she said as she wiped her eyes. Why would he force me to go through all this pain, seeing so many awful things? Why, if he weren't punishing me, if I was good, I mean, I must have done something long ago. What did I do that was so wrong? What? What? She asked, her eyes almost reaching across the room. Mata, let's just take this step by step. What makes you so sure that you're actually being punished? He asked, keeping his professional attitude and being oblivious to her crying. I, I, I am being punished. Couldn't things just happen, Marta? She shook her head, slowly at first, and then with stern disagreement. It was just inconceivable to her. She had just never thought of such things. Looking the gift horse called God in the mouth was not something she had been taught to do. Things just happening. What? What? Things just happening? Why, that's totally absurd. What are you saying? That there is no God at all? No, no, that's not what I'm saying. Then you're saying God just lets things go. The deist approach. I know all about that. What do you think of such an approach? Asked Johnson as he tapped his pencil on the notebook. I never thought about it. I mean, if God exists, of course he exists, she quickly corrected. Then he must be all-powerful. He's told us with his word what we must do, for my Redeemer lives. And at last he will stand on earth after my skin has thus destroyed then from my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see. Yes, yes, I see your point, interrupted Johnson. Marta put her head in her palms and squeezed her eyes tightly. She tried to weigh it all in her mind. What he was saying about God letting things run. She just grew more confused. Johnson put down the notebook and spoke very loudly. God forgives too, doesn't he, Marta? Yes, she said, looking up. I can... See what you're trying to say. Johnson leaned back in his chair and looked at his watch. But there are some things that even God never forgives. Mater, would you have been happy if your husband's job did not exist? Let's just pretend that he never went to school. He never... Oh, no, no, doctor. No, doctor, as she looked up at him. That's Jamie's livelihood. He's done what he's wanted to do in spite of his father and all the Pendleton money. Don't you see what this means to him? Never mind your husband. What about you? Would you be happier if this job never existed? I don't know. I just don't know, she said, sensing it was all pent up inside of her. She opened her mouth and raised her hands upward as her face tightened. 
Yes, yes, oh God, yes, I would be happier, she said, retreating to her habit of putting her head in her hands. You would really be happier. I would be happier for me, at least when he was equal with me, for all those graduate degrees, she said as she looked up at him once again. The tears seemed to cease now as she had truly admitted it. But it's not that simple. Helping Jamie and the children does give me some satisfaction. I try to do things in the most perfect way for them. No one can do things perfectly. We're all human and flawed. To try and always do the most perfect thing will only cause frustration. But I feel as though I have to be made up for something, she said, rubbing her eyes. You tired, Martyr? Yes, yes. I'm very tired. I need to get away, that's all. Then you'd rest if you could. Take a holiday from all your problems. She smiled, nodding her head as she bit into her bottom lip. How can I rest? How? With Jamie working 70 hours a week sometimes? How can I rest? Is Jamie outside now? Asked Johnson as he leaned forward. I suppose he is. Would you mind if I had a few words with him? He asked as he stood. My God, am I getting that bad? I thought I would... No, 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 it's nothing of the sort. I just want to talk with him about your having a rest. Is that all right with you? Yeah, sure, go ahead, she said, waving her arm. I don't want to do anything against your will. No, no, it's all right. Do you want me to go out there with you? She asked as she started to get up. No, 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 no. He put his hand on her shoulder as if she were a child. Just a few minor things. I'll be right back. You just sit down and relax. Johnson strode from the room and into his secretary's office. Marta could hear the undercurrents of talking, and the secretary pointed to the door. Well, he's out in the lobby. And Marta started to think once again. Talking to Jamie. Oh, God in heaven. Something is wrong. I told him too much. I'm just burying myself deeper and deeper. He knows more and more about me, and he's going to use those things against me. Who the hell does he think he is? And why does he really want to talk to Jamie? Damn, damn, it must be me. The sanitarium. Not the sanitarium. It can't, it can't be. Sit tight, Myra, sit tight. Jamie wouldn't allow it. He never would. Never, never, never. Johnson stepped into the extensive lobby with the huge plate glass windows at either end. Jamie stood to the doctor's right. Jamie. Jamie spun around, smiling as they walked toward each other. Well, doctor, how are you today? I'm fine, Jamie. Can we talk? He asked as he motioned him back toward the windows. They looked out over the busy city, Johnson thinking about his pool again as he turned to Jamie with a thoughtful look on his face. Jamie, Modder and I have just finished up another session. It's the fourth in ten days. She's getting worse, isn't she? He asked with great trepidation. No, nah, I wouldn't say she's getting worse. We're moving very quickly today, that's all. I'd like things to settle a bit before we have another session. Really? Well, that certainly fits right into my plans. You're a mind reader, doctor. I have a trip already planned. Back to New Hampshire. We'll leave on Friday and be gone for two weeks. Oh, you have it all planned, do you? Questioned Johnson. Why, yes, of course. That's part of her problem, Jamie. I told you that before. You have your life well in hand. You've risen to a highly respected position, and your future looks vital and alive. You have everything to look forward to. 
and Mata has nothing. Is that what you're saying? Yes, that's more or less correct. She does indeed enjoy taking part in what essentially is your success. But that's all she does, take part. And she's not adverse to being a mother. It's part of her makeup. However, there are other things. Her own individual development, for example. Her potential. I'm not saying she has to become a researcher at USC. That's your thing. But she needs direction. She doesn't know where she's coming from, and she has no idea where she's going. And from what she's related to me, although you came from a family with extraordinary wealth, you still accepted her on equal footing. That footing, Jamie, has eroded slowly over the years. Oh, then you know all about our St. August days, how we went to college together. Until your graduate work, you were both on an even keel. She views the St. August time as a more secure time for herself and your relationship. And rightly so, said Johnson as he looked out over the busy freeways. Then you won't object to my vacation. Object, I would consider it a godsend, with strings attached, of course. And what are those strings? Primary to this whole discussion is Marta's physical condition. She, with all her problems, is suffering from extreme exhaustion, can't sleep well, and her flashes are probably due to a combination of fatigue and self-inflicted standards. I can't keep pumping Valiums into her. It'll drive her to the sanitarium for sure. Jamie stared outside. The thought of the sanitarium frightened him. He would tell the world that he was less than perfect. Everything was coming to him now. Thoughts of his father and the mysterious power plant darted back and forth in his brain. All the while, he was acutely aware that his wife was not normal. She not only had serious problems, but they were not abating within her counseling. Her problems were growing steadily worse, and he was the crux of many of those problems. What can I do? You're the professional. And you're the husband. Reduce the complications in her life. Bring her forward. I'll bring her home, he said. Back to New Hampshire. Back to the simpler days. Less complicated, as you say. That would be an important first step, in my opinion. But it is only a first step. Something like this could take years to resolve. We must both follow it through when you get back. Oh, you mean those hideous flashes he said with a certain snobbery, as if he were above all of them. Yes, the flashes complicates matters. Would this trip somehow break the grip they seem to have on Marta? I, in my wildest fantasies, have never imagined anything so vulgar. Dead bodies and blood, it makes me sick just thinking about it. It's really as if she sees those things. Oh, indeed, she does see them vividly. It's no daydream if that's what you're thinking. Back to your trip. Try and put the present demands off her shoulders and point toward the future, if you know what I mean. Well, I have a general idea, and I have your phone number, doctor. Yes, by all means. If there's the slightest hint of trouble, call me, said Johnson as he shook Jamie's hand. Now, look, have a good time up there. Yes, yes, I will. Thank you. I'll go back and I'll send Marder outside he said as he turned from the window. Oh, doctor, let me tell her about the trip, insisted Jamie. Yes, that's what I had in mind, said Johnson. Good luck. Johnson went back to his office and Jamie looked out the window again. He pulled out a piece of paper from his pocket. It had already been folded and refolded so many times that many of the seams had already split. 
In his hand was a detailed blueprint of the hydro plant at St. Argus. He had used his connections around the country to obtain the blueprint. As he studied the intricate parts, he ran his finger along the heating ducts. Many of the ducts ended abruptly and for no reason at all. The real reason, he ascertained, was the fact that the blueprint was incomplete and the ducts ran far below the hydro portion of the plant. If he followed the ducts, he might find the answers he had been looking for. Marduk was increasingly insecure about his conversation with Jamie. Johnson had specifically mentioned that she had needed a rest. That's what he had said. But what kind of a rest would it be? Were they, in fact, planning to remove her from society and place her in a sanitarium? The inner door closed and Johnson stood in front of her. His face gave no hint of any decision. That in itself presented a bleak outlook to her. Mata, I think we've had a very full session here today. You made it a point to express much of what's been troubling you, he said as he looked at her mournful brown eyes. Well, how, how would you rate it? Well, I'd have to evaluate things before I could give you my overall opinion of the session. And what about the rest? She asked as she got to her feet and came right up to him. Are you sending me away, doctor? Please, please don't send me away from my husband and children. Marta, no. Nothing could be further from the truth. I said you needed a rest, just like anyone needs a rest. Any normal person, she snapped. Anyone. Jamie is outside in the lobby. He can fill you in on what he has in mind. Jamie? Jamie's going to help me? She asked. Yes, he's outside in the lobby, reassured Johnson. I'm afraid, said Marta, as her paranoia threatened to overwhelm her. The office seemed to look different now instantly flashing into a burning black-and-white inferno, and just as quickly it reverted back to the way it was. She covered her mouth, but her face gave it away. Marta, Marta, what is it? Johnson wanted to know as he held her. Another flash? No, no, it was nothing, she said loudly, shaking her head as she broke his grip. She had to get away now. No longer would she reveal anything to Johnson. He could only use that knowledge against her. She opened the door and headed through the secretary's office. Johnson chased after her, but she was already in the lobby, and anything he did at this point would probably do a little good. She ran toward her husband at the far end. It would be in his hands, and Johnson could only hope that the trip would somehow begin to change things for this beleaguered woman. As Jamie saw her approach, he quickly stuffed the duck plans into his pocket. He spun around from the window and walked toward her with a smile on his face and met her halfway in the hallway. He scooped her up in his arms. Marta, however, did not like being close to him as he gracefully swung her through the air. She squirmed and freed herself, and then he set her down. Jamie, as usual, did not sense the deep feelings of despair inside of her. I'm really not in the mood, Jamie. I've had a rough session with Johnson. I know, I know, he said as he held her hand and pulled her over to the window. Jamie, I really don't have the time. I just want to go home, she said as he sat her down on the sill. No, Marta, this is something good, a surprise. Please, please listen. All right, she said. She gazed at his thick blonde hair and put his hand on her shoulder. Marta, I've arranged a trip, an extravaganza for us, he said as if he had planned it for her all along. A relaxing time. Jamie, what the hell did he say to you? Well, he told me you needed a rest and that we should get away for a while. We should both get away? 
Well, and the kids, of course, we're going back to St. Argus, Marta, he said, holding her by both shoulders now and taking total credit for the trip. St. Argus? Really? St. Argus? She asked again, still half believing it. We haven't been there since we were in school, Jamie. The kids have never been up there. Well, we're going up there, he told her as the tiny New England town, nestled in the northern part of the White Mountains, came back to her muddled thoughts. But what about your job? I've got the time, never mind the job, and the kids will be on school vacation starting Friday. All the arrangements have been made, he said as he lifted her up again. But she felt nothing from his touch. It had been so long since he had even hugged her. We're going back home, honey pie, he said. He hadn't called her that in years. Awkwardly, he led her from the windows toward the elevator. She was not enthused by his sudden attention as much as she was enthused by the prospect of leaving and getting out of her miserable rut. Awkwardly, he led her away from the windows and toward the elevator. She was not enthused by his sudden attentions as much as she was by the prospect of leaving and getting out of her miserable rut. They disappeared into the elevator, destined for another world, away from the pressures, all the preparations, and all the stark reality of life. Join us next time for My Other Face by Robert P. Fitton. Produced by Fitton Theatre of the Words.